trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I got to tell you, I'm very excited to uh, welcome an old friend, a guest who uh, I've, I've interviewed a number of times over the years, but it's been a little while. I want to welcome Tammy Brinkerhoff to my program. And Tammy, if, if memory serves, I think we first crossed paths a little over 20 years ago, and, and it was on the topic of adoption. And since November is adoption month, um, it's good to see us reconnect. Uh, first of all, how are you doing? And, and then we can dive a little bit into, uh, into the, the topic of what's ahead of us for this month. Well, thank you. I'm doing great. My adoptive family is doing great. My kids are huge now. I've got a 23 and a 20 year old. <laughs> and wow. Yeah, yeah, they they were they were much smaller when when uh, the last time you and I talked. But we've actually we've stayed in touch over the years, and and the subject of adoption is one that's that's very near and dear to me. I was adopted, as uh, were my sisters. Actually, my wife and I just succeeded in adopting a son this year. Um, I've met my biological parents. I mean, it's this this has really been, you know, a, a remarkable experience. And I know you've been one of those voices for some time. Can you give us just a little background? When did when did adoption become, you know, a, a cause to which you were willing to to step up and, and be a part of it? It started out for me and my husband about twenty eight years ago. And um, we went 12 years without children and figured out, well, if we wanted a family, adoption was going to be the route to go. And then I was super involved with family supporting adoption for years. And that's a group that isn't in, they're not around anymore, but we used to provide education for adoptive families. Because when you adopt in the state of Utah, for example, you have to have 10 hours of education. Oh. So we would provide that. We would have birth parent panels. We would do whatever we could to help them be as ready as possible, which you don't really get those parenting classes before you have a baby. But we did all we could to help families be ready to bring those kids into their home. Now, there have been some pretty so that's, Oh, go ahead. Continue, please. No, I was just going to say that's how I got into it. And over the years, we've helped a whole bunch of people get children. We've taken in birth mothers and had them live with us and watch their children grow. We've, we've stayed in touch with the families that adopted their babies plus them. So it's fun to have this exponential family. Plus, we are also in touch with the birth parents for our children. And we've had a lot of really fun things happen with them. Some miracles. And it just is a great way to bring families together. Now, one of the reasons that you and I are talking, and this is actually something we're going to, you and I are going to be visiting, and you'll actually have some guests as we continue on through the month of November, just to, to make this kind of once a week, this is going to be in, within the um, awareness of, of my listeners. You mentioned to me before we went on the air that there's a, there are a couple of interesting trends that have happened. Number one, you told me adoptions are, are down considerably. And secondly, um, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, abortion likewise is down. Let's, uh, let's touch first on why adoptions are down, and then, then we can, can talk about the, the, the pro-life side of this as well. I think adoptions are down because the great influence of people on single women to parent it's okay, you don't need a father. It's okay, you can do this. 
And a lot of times grandparents are super influential because that's their grandchild and they'll help and they want to do all they can to make this baby's life as good as possible. But I don't think adoption is even on their mind because you don't really see, oh, adoption here and adoption there. You don't really hear about adoption. But when you really look at it, over half the families in the country are affected by adoption in one way or another or know someone who has adopted or been adopted. It just isn't something that we talk about. And I would love for that to be on everyone's radar again, especially with the changes with the Dobbs decision for um, the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And I'd love for people to know that that's a resource out there that it's just not considered very often, but it is a wonderful resource. It's, I call it um, elective adoption or elective incentivized <laughs> adoption. I just intentional creating of families. Like I can't see any negative about adoption. No, I'm, I'm with you. And, and uh, having been through what I've been through the last few years, you know, it's been kind of a journey. I was, I, I um, was a supporter of adoption before, now I've had a chance to kind of see it from both sides, and I'm much, I'm even more of a supporter than I was before, just because this has blessed, it's blessed so many lives that uh, you really wouldn't you, I don't I'm not trying to sound elitist here, but you almost have to experience it to really understand just what a what a positive thing this can be, which I guess is why a lot of people, you know, maybe aren't that aware at least at this point. Right, that's right, and if it hasn't affected you, it's usually not on your radar. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, has it become easier over the years to adopt? I mean, look, when, when I was adopted as a baby, they sealed up the records. And, and to my understanding, those records are still sealed tight. And, you know, it, it takes, you know, a judge's order to even, you know, get a look. And they won't do that unless it's something really extraordinary. I was able to use 23andMe to, to connect some dots. But ha- have we seen the, the laws and, and have we seen the policies start to to soften a bit, to make it more of a, an open experience as opposed to, okay, this is done. We will never speak of it again. Right, right. The actual adoption laws state are state by state, and they haven't changed a whole lot. There are some states who are very adoption friendly and other states who are really not. Utah is a very friendly adoption state. Idaho is a very adoption friendly state. Wisconsin, for example, is very unfriendly. The birth mothers have to they can't relinquish for 30 days after that child is born and during that 30-day time frame the baby is either with foster care or with the birth family the adoptive family can visit and that's all so that discourages adoption because by the time that 30 days is up there's attachment for sure so there are states that are really not friendly to adoption there are states that make the birth moms relinquish in a court in public, which is cruelty, I think, which I would love to change that because I've been at relinquishments and that's a very private excruciating moment for a birth mom and birth family. So I'd love to see that change in those states where they are public. And um, yeah, I just, there's so much when it comes to finding your birth families and opening records, every state has a law regarding the records. Um, Oregon is now an open record state, but Utah still isn't. And so if you were adopted way back in the day when those records were closed, your resource is the adoption 
registry, which is online, or 23andMe or Ancestry.com or any of those DNA testing sites. And hopefully you find matches. And I've found that a lot of the families are looking for each other. Wow. And they've been, no one was ever forgotten. Now that's powerful. We, we've got a couple minutes here left in, in this segment, but let's, who are you going to have joining you um, when you come back to, to talk again next week? I understand you actually have some really interesting guests that, that we may be talking to through this month. I do, I do. One of the people that I'd like to bring on is Mary Kelch, who is the director of Pro-Life Utah. She has a story that is really compelling, and she is one of those wonderful voices out there for life. I'd love to bring her. I'd love to have a birth mom come talk to us and an adoptee and maybe talk to you a little bit about your experience. Okay. And let's do that. Okay, uh, we've, we're down to about one minute here, but uh, if there's a takeaway that our listener can, can take from our conversation here today, um, what's the message that you would most like them to come away with and, and when they hear us talking again this month to, to remember? What, what do we hope to, to have them take home? Adoption blesses all. Plain and simple. Adoption blesses all. Why is it so overlooked? Is it, is it, it's, I mean, it's not like somebody's trying to suppress it. Is it just that we have things distracting us that, that keep us from seeing it? I think that there are so many distractions and I think there's so many, so much out there that is against fathers. And so it makes it so parent mothers are like, I can parent on my own. And then that opens up a whole nother can. Yeah. There's uh, there's something to be said for, for the family, you know, the arrangement that seems to pop up no matter time or place or how, civilized or uncivilized a culture is there, there's a very familiar arrangement that seems to emerge and it's mom and dad raising the kids together um, adoption is just uh, one more way to to secure that uh, stability and and that that positive influence tammy for people who want more information on adoption are there any websites you would refer them to or, where they could uh, bring themselves up to speed there's hope pregnancy center and they are throughout the country and you can just type in Hope Pregnancy Center on a, on a search bar. There are a bunch of adoption podcasts that you can listen to that give you perspectives from all sides. And there are probably 10 of those that are great to listen to to give you a little bit of education. Okay, we will be talking with Tammy Brinkerhoff next week. Tammy, great to connect with you again and happy Adoption Month. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And a quick thank you to garagedoorproservices.com for being one of the sponsors of this program. By the way, if you or somebody you know wants to become a sponsor, just hit me up and I'll be happy to uh, connect you. I realize it's not for everybody, but thank you, Seth, and thank you to your staff and for the great job you do for the residents of St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City. They install, they service, they repair garage doors, and they don't do it grudgingly. It's not like, all right, we'll do it. They actually take care of their customers. You want to see exactly how well they take care of them? Go to their website, Garage Door Pro Services, and just look at the customer reviews. What you're going to find is example after example of positively outrageous 
customer service. And I mean in the good sense, like, wow, nobody's ever taken care of us that well before. That's Garage Door Pros. Check out their website, garagedoorproservices.com. So, I can't think of another time in my lifetime, other than the last three years, when there has been so much effort to keep people from questioning what government is telling them. And i got a couple of articles here to kind of help uh, make that understandable and exactly the lengths to which people who just want to be in control are going to make sure that you and I don't ask questions or encounter information that might lead us to doubt what they're telling us. For instance, you've probably heard now that uh, the Department of Homeland Security was teaming up with social media giants in order to censor viewpoints that they don't want heard. And when I saw that uh, Jim Bovard had written a piece for the Washington Post on this very subject, I thought, okay, I want to see what uh, what Mr. Bovard has to say. He's one of the more informed writers, uh, really understands what's going on in Washington, D.C., and, and he pulls no punches. He'll tell it straight. So here's how, how Jim Bovard describes it. He says, federal agencies are censoring what you see online to protect America's, this is in quotation marks, cognitive infrastructure. Well, there's a great bureaucratic term, right? A report Monday from the left-wing Intercept revealed shocking details on how the FBI and Department of Homeland Security secretly affected the 2020 election and are rapidly expanding their suppression of dissent. Now, in the spring, Department of Homeland Security revealed it had a disinformation governance board headed by a wacky zealot named Nina Jankowitz. The New York Post led the charge against that Ministry of Truth, and many people believed the peril ended when that board was dissolved. But far more insidious formal censorship efforts are proliferating. Bovard says the FBI, DHS, Secret Service, even Customs and Border Protection are elbowing social media companies like Facebook and Twitter to engage in censorship by surrogate, as law professor Jonathan Turley observed. As the covert war against misinformation expands, the list of federally prohibited online thoughts is snowballing. So, for instance, DHS is targeting inaccurate information on the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the U.S. nature of support to Ukraine. That's, this is what The Intercept reported. What, what? We can't question any of those things? Eh, apparently not. So Jim Bovard asks, are federal censors still seeking to enforce President Biden's delusion that COVID vaccines prevent transmission? Are they continuing to suppress any information about COVID originating in a Wuhan lab? Is any criticism of Biden's botched Afghan withdrawal considered heresy? See, in many cases, DHS notified Facebook and Twitter to suppress parody accounts, perhaps because nothing is more subversive than laughing at politicians. So how many votes were swayed by federal censorship in 2020? In fact, how many are going to be swayed in next week's midterm election? The campaign by the feds and the former CIA poobahs to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story was just the tip of the iceberg in the presidential race. The Intercept noted the FBI agent who primed social media platforms to take down the Hunter Biden laptop story continued to have a role in DHS policy discussions. As the Foundation for Freedom Online recently reported, federal contractors also alerted DHS, which then elbowed big tech to suppress hundreds of posts by Americans that were casting doubt on the integrity of the election outcome via criticism of things like the viability of drop boxes and mail-in ballots. Now, Jim points out the real truth of the real goal, rather, of the truth cops is to control America's minds. 
Jen Easterly, Biden's Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency chief, declared that the most critical infrastructure is our cognitive infrastructure. So building that resilience to misinformation and disinformation is incredibly important. And of course, the most important fix is to train Americans to never doubt Uncle Sam. Biden's national strategy for countering domestic terrorism explicitly proclaims a broader priority of enhancing faith in government. I don't know why, but that sounds like that would be more at home in North Korea. But I, I, you know, am going off track here. Anyway, back to uh, Jim Bovard's article. He says, in a March meeting with top Twitter executives, FBI official Laura Demelo warned that the threat of subversive information on social media could undermine support for the U.S. government. The FBI has 80 agents on a task force to curb subversive data utilized to drive a wedge between the populace and the government. Mike Benz, a former top State Department official, warns that thanks to DHS string polling, the U.S. government, in effect, censored the ability to cast doubt on the U.S. government. On Sunday's Face the Nation, Biden chief censor Jen Easterly warned that midterm elections face a very complex threat environment because you have rampant disinformation. <laughs> that's, that's a great code word for free thinking. Easterly didn't offer an example. As, uh, for, as an example, Biden's claim last week in Syracuse that the price for a gallon of gas was over $5 when I took office. What moral standing do federal officials have to suppress alleged private misinformation when the commander-in-chief is brazenly lying? Bovard says federal censorship efforts have almost certainly been far more extensive than yet revealed. Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, could give a heroic booster shot to the First Amendment by revealing all the emails, texts, and other messages federal agents have sent to pressure Twitter to muzzle American citizens. And I love this last line. If the federal agencies have nothing to hide, well, then they have nothing to fear, right? Well said, James Bovard. (laughs) Isn't it interesting, though? It's not the medical establishment. It's not the media. It's the, it's the national security apparatus that really is working to control this information and trying to keep us from getting a little too close to the truth. That's kind of spooky in some ways because anything can be justified in the name of national security. So how do you get solid information? I'm going to include in today's show notes, and I hope you'll click on this article. It's from Michael Bryant. This was published on offguardian.org. COVID-19, a universe of questions in a time of universal deceit. Now, that's a quote that's kind of attributed to George Orwell, right? In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a, is a revolutionary act. People say he said that. I, I can't find the direct attribution, but... The original COVID story, the once unassailable COVID story, repeated and reported by politicians, public health mandarins, and all mainstream media, has been replaced by contradictions and inconsistencies. Now, the original COVID story, narrated by health experts and government officials, told of a particularly virulent pathogen which besieged the planet in 2020 and spread like wildfire, terrorizing, infecting, and killing people in mass. So it was the story of a pandemic-level event in which people were told to stay indoors, entire sectors of society forced to shut down, humans were told to do everything possible to avoid contact with one another. It was a story of closed-down schools, closed-down businesses, closed-down churches, and soon-to-be-overwhelmed hospitals. Latter chapters of the COVID story morphed from ironclad truths like follow the science to ever-changing definitions, the science evolves, Countless aspects of the official narrative changed overnight. 
and gradually the tale became fraught with pages of questionable statistics and ever-shifting storylines. So what are you to do with that kind of misinformation? Do I even dare use that term? <laughs> well, I think you'll like this article because it asks the questions that really are what we need to, to get a better feel for the truth. It's not a matter of, well, I want the answers. You know, give me, give me you know, all the data so I can just regurgitate it on command. We need to be asking these questions of the people, the institutions, the, the policy makers who foisted that official narrative on us. And they need to be held accountable. We'll be talking more about that coming up in a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and also LifesavingFood.com. Three of my other wonderful sponsors, and I encourage you, please, if you have need for what they offer, do business with them. Let them know that their message is reaching your ears. So here's a story that just refuses to be swept under the rug, and I'm going to tell you right up front, this is a disturbing story. Okay, this doesn't bring me warm fuzzies. I'm not reporting this with with any sense of, yay, look at this. But uh, the fact remains, unexplained excess deaths are on the rise, as in there are a half million excess deaths in the U.S., unaccounted for, and the usual suspects don't add up to that many. This is a piece by Edward Ring, published on AmericanGreatness.com. Now, Edward Ring says, by a significant margin, and according to data reported weekly by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, the death rate in America remains elevated. Now, if nothing else is certain, as Americans continue to cope with the most disruptive event of the last half century, one fact is indisputable. As the number of cases of COVID-19 decreased over the last few months, they now account for less than half of this persistently elevated death rate. So we can't just voice this off on, well, see, COVID's killing everybody. No. In the six years before the COVID era, deaths in the United States averaged between 2.6 million and 2.8 million people per year. Now, these averages are adjusted for population growth, and with a population as large as that of the United States, the numbers should be and are remarkably stable. During the three years preceding, immediately preceding 2020, for example, the population of growth adjusted death rate from all causes varied by just 1.5%. But none of that's true today. Deaths from all causes, not just COVID deaths, is up significantly. In the nine months from, in the nine months in April, I'm sorry, in the nine months in 2020 from April to December, a normal death count would have been 2.04 million, but instead, during that period, 5.7 million people died. Sorry, let's try that again. 2.57 million people died. That means that was 26% above normal. So deaths in the United States from all causes in 2021 were well above normal. 3.46 million versus only 2.8 million had it been a normal year. That's 24% over normal. So far in 2022, with complete data available through August, total deaths were 1.91 million against a projected 2.21 million if it were a normal year. That's still up 16%. And by the way, he has the graphs that will show you what those, those percentages look like. So to put these overages in perspective, 
in recent decades before COVID came along, a very bad flu season would mean an increase in total deaths, but typically not much more than the usual increases every flu season. And you can see that in the chart where the normal multi-year average or the blue line rises to a peak of around 60,000 total deaths per week during the worst month of flu season in January, then descends to around 50,000 per week in midsummer. Even the H1N1 virus didn't have a significant overall impact. Between 2009 and 2010, the CDC estimates around 12,500 Americans died from H1N1. That represents a not quite 0.5% increase in total deaths. So while it's encouraging total excess deaths in the United States during 22, so far are up just 16% compared to 24% in 2021 and 26% in the last nine months of 2020. The fact remains, they're still well above anything we have seen in the United States in the last 100 years. But more troubling is the fact that according to the CDC's own data, most of these excess deaths cannot be attributed to COVID. And here's another chart that shows the blue line plots the number of excess deaths over the two and a half years. Last two and a half years, the gray line plots how many of those excess deaths are attributable to COVID. And what's remarkable is that gray line is consistently below the blue line. So breaking this down to numbers reveals the following percentages of unexplained excess deaths. During the first nine months of the pandemic through December 2020, 32% of excess deaths were not reported as COVID deaths. During 2022, 29% of excess deaths were not reported as COVID deaths. And through the first eight months of 2022, 32% of excess deaths are unexplained by COVID. Now, the most recent data are not encouraging. For the two most recent months for which we have complete data from the CDC, that would be July and August, 57% of excess deaths are not explained by COVID. Now, these numbers can't be dismissed. The sample sizes are too big. In July and August, 26,685 people were reported dead from COVID. But during those same two months, 62,576 more people died than should have died in a normal July and August. So the question arises, what could account for this? Overall, since the COVID-19 pandemic began from April, 20th, from April of 2020 through August of 2022, the CDC reported 1,044,323 COVID-related deaths. But so-called excess deaths during that period, even when adjusting for population growth, are at 1.5 million. There are a half million excess deaths in the U.S. that are unaccounted for. The usual suspects do not add up to that many. For example, suicides increased from 45,979 in 2020 to 47,646 in 2021. But there were 48,344 suicides reported in 2018, two years before the pandemic. Murders were up 30% in 2020 versus 2019 then up by another 6% in 2021. Now, these are alarming trends, but they still only account for about 7,000 excess homicides over pre-COVID averages. Deaths from drug overdoses are way up, over 22,000 more in 2021 compared to 2020, with 2020 drug overdoses up about 8,000 over 2019. Automobile fatalities were up by 4,000 in 2021 compared to 2020. All of this is alarming, but numerically it still doesn't explain what we're seeing. Deaths from suicides, murders, drug overdoses, automobile fatalities, all combined and over, over the past two and a half years, 
may account for as many as 100,000 of the 500,000 unexplained excess deaths in the U.S. And that's being generous. But what killed the other 400,000 Americans during the COVID era? Since we know it wasn't COVID. Now, one suggestion easily debunked is, well, we have an aging population. And it's true, our population is aging, but that still doesn't explain the excess deaths. If you view what's known as a population pyramid, so for the United States, as of 2021, he actually shows this one. At the top, you'll see America's senior citizens, plotted by age, form a fairly smooth downward slope. But there's a blip on the scope, and this is seen for men and women age 75. Born in 1946 in the first wave of the baby boom, how significant is this bulge in the slope? Since uh, people born that year are nearing the end of average life expectancy. As it is, among Americans still living, about 890,000 more were born in 1946 than were born in 1945. Now, it's possible because people born immediately after World War II are just now beginning to pass through the years where they're most likely to die of natural causes. We'll see higher overall death rates than we've seen in the years 2013 through 2019, a period in which the death rates in the U.S. were stable from year to year. But wouldn't COVID have finished them off? even if uh, people approaching the ends of their lifespans are more numerous than usual? America's current age demographics may explain a, a small temporary increase in the death rate in America, but only a small American, a percentage of Americans actually die in the year corresponding to the average lifespan for their birth year cohort. So it's not a significant factor in contributing to excess non-COVID deaths. Now, the elephant in the room, of course, is, okay, what about the new vaccines? And to what extent can excess deaths be attributed to adverse events caused by hundreds of millions of Americans receiving multiple COVID shots? Now, data from the VAERS website, that's Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, don't indicate nearly enough fatalities from the COVID shot to begin to explain a half million non-COVID disease deaths in the past two years. But those numbers are widely disputed. Edward Ring says, without diving into that rabbit hole, it's sufficient to say excess deaths in the U.S., that aren't caused by COVID might primarily be the sum of increases in suicides, murders, car accidents, drug overdoses, a disproportionately large number of 1946 babies reaching the limit of their life expectancy and preferred diagnoses and deferred treatment and deferred diagnoses and deferred treatments. Or it might be something else. Regardless of why, though, he says the percentage of excess deaths that remain unexplained by COVID have doubled in the past few months and now accounts for two out of three excess deaths. This bears close watching in life as, as, as life in the time of COVID goes on and on and on. I know that's a, it's a terrifying prospect to consider. And, and, you know, in the back of my mind, when, when I, anytime I hear of someone has died suddenly, especially if it's a person say under the age of 60, I have to say the first thought that I have is I want to ask, I don't do it, but I want to ask, was that person vaccinated or had they, had they recently, you know, been vaccinated? I'm not trying to pin it all on the vaccine, but you know, the fact of the matter is we still have a control group and that's those of us who never took the jab. And right now, as far as I can tell, that's not the group that's dropping dead from myocarditis or blood clots or other heart problems. I don't know. Somebody's got some explaining to do for sure. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I fully understand this is a program that just is not for everybody. Some people are a little more serious about their commitment to, uh, you know, pursuing truth, even if it leads them into uncomfortable places, by which I mean things that we'd really rather not have to consider. But, you know, I'm not here to scare you to death. I'm not telling scary stories around the campfire or otherwise trying to provoke your anger or your fears or, you know, direct you, hey, hate that person, hate that group. But I'm definitely trying to get you to think about why would it be that uh, so many people in, in positions or in centers of power seem determined to keep us from either talking about, discussing, or even questioning the official narrative. Programs like this exist to challenge those narratives. That's why we say we revel in wrong think. We dare to ask the questions that uh, people who would like to control us would really rather we didn't ask. You know, it might undermine our faith in them somehow. All right, I'll stop with the sarcasm. So uh, those who are claiming to want pandemic amnesty. I know it's, it's been a big topic this week. And, and, and I got to tell you, I have to, I go back and forth between, I really do believe in the power of forgiveness, mainly from the times in my life where I've been the one who screwed up royally and had to ask someone else for their forgiveness. And there is, it's, it's very humbling to have to own a mistake that you've made and to ask someone to forgive you. But there's something incredible and healing, and I think good, that happens when that forgiveness is extended. I've also been on the other side of the coin where I needed to extend forgiveness to somebody. And it's a very liberating thing. In fact, I honestly, I believe the best part about forgiveness is when you're the person extending it, it frees you. It's a gift you give yourself to free yourself from the burden of carrying around hurt, pain, a wrong, a grudge, whatever. But I have a real tough time with the idea of, well, maybe we just need to forgive each other for the things that we did. And, and, and the reason I have such a struggle with it is because the contempt that was shown people who merely wanted to be left alone. Okay, we weren't out there trying to impose, everybody, don't wear a mask. Everybody, don't get the shot. Everybody, do what I'm doing. Don't like what I don't like. We just wanted to be left alone. And there were way too many people who just couldn't help themselves, piled on, you know, and, and did everything they could to make our lives difficult. That's, it's hard not to take that personal. It's hard to look at that and say, well, you know, if I was in their shoes, I'd have done the same thing. I don't do that because I'm not a damn control freak. I'm not an idiot who wants to, to, to put other people under my thumb and make sure that they're doing exactly what they're told to do. But if you are serious about wanting pandemic amnesty and you would like to be forgiven, Karen Kwiatkowski says, if you want forgiveness, here's your program. She says, being lectured to, condemned, ridiculed, hated by elitist bullies is bad enough on a single day or for one issue. But this behavior went on for over two and a half years, for nearly a thousand days in a thousand ways. The economic, social, interpersonal, and educational costs associated with these mandates and unscientific policies will last a lifetime for many, and it certainly shortened the lifetimes of many more. Now, the suggestion by the World Economic Forum-loving pro-war lefties at the Atlantic is that they and their global team of unscientific lemmings, like uh, lemming-like nanny state bullies, just possibly 
were a bit misinformed, not their fault, in 2020 and 2021 regarding masking, untested genetic injections, and actual death rates, etc. Not their fault. This bully squad accepted without question the lies their government told them, not their fault. They not only eagerly, but radically and angrily defended and promoted those lies. Okay, that's partly their fault. And they hope we understand that it wasn't entirely their fault, and they're, they're still smart and educated. They just really wanted to live and survive a flu-like disease with a death rate comparable to any other bad flu. And their nagging and incoherent jammering and name-calling was just so we also wouldn't die unless we refused the experimental free required shot and continued to live our lives and keep our businesses open. Then, it was, then if we died, it was kind of funny to them. Now, their excuse was fear, but in reality, it was not fear at all. Nor was it hate, although it kind of looked like it. It was contempt from day one. Leftover contempt from the Trump era, pumped up and recirculated via a government over-response to a disease that we now understand to have been created via gain-of-function in a government lab by American scientists, including several who had close and professional relationships with Fauci. It was individual contempt, political contempt, and institutional contempt for the masses as demonstrated by the Gates Foundation and its compadres, the Democratic Party, and numerous government-aligned institutions and industries. So, Emily Oster wants us to forgive each other, but it isn't hate they dished out to us. If it had been, that hate might be forgiven. If they hated us because they didn't know any better, and now they don't hate us anymore because they know better, well, that can be forgiven. However, contempt is not something that can be forgiven by the formerly contemptible. Because their contempt has nothing to do with us. Their contempt for us, rather, has nothing to do with us, which means it isn't our problem. Their contempt for us should be eliminated, not by our forgiveness, which is irrelevant, but by their own internal change, their own decisions, individually, that we're at least their equals, and quite possibly, in the case of the COVID COVID policy fiasco, examples they could and should have followed, rather than condemned. So, Karen Kwiatkowski says, here are some steps that, if taken, would make me believe that they are serious. Oster tossed out a veiled, somewhat worried request for a kind of forgiveness, and tellingly, she also used the word amnesty. She knows what we all know. Crimes were committed, and citizen trust in governing institutions and their university media industry cohorts has been broken and will not be easily restored. Now, clearly... Most people harmed by the myriad of bad policies and bad attitudes by the virulent anti-critical thinking crowd are nowhere near ready to forgive. There could be a time for that after court cases are adjudicated, government bureaucrats fired, politicians kicked out of office, and the books and science come out from behind the shadows. When the ghoulish merger of government and big pharma and the medical institutions is destroyed and we gain back the freedoms we should have always had with regards to our healthcare decisions and actions, then... There could be time for forgiveness. But she takes this one step further. In fact, she says, I'd like to see a 12-step movement embraced and acted upon by people like Emily. Addicts like uh, the bullying anti-science left-wing are addicts. They gave over personal responsibility to think and act soberly and fairly to the things they are addicted to, which are government-centralized power and their own comfortable sense of superiority over people who disagree with them politically. So to this end, she says, I recommend that Emily Oster and all of her peers and allies follow these 12 steps. You ready for this? Number one, admit they were powerless over their knee-jerk acceptance of government messaging that their lives had become unmanageable, and yet they remained arrogant. 
Number two, come to believe a power greater than themselves could restore them to sanity. And that power is not the federal government or its associated bureaucracies and lackey institutions. Number three, made a decision to turn their will and their lives over to the care of God as they understand God. Number four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of themselves and their actions, beliefs, and behaviors over the past three years. Number four, oh, that was number four, rather. Uh, Number five, admitted to God, to themselves, and to another human being the exact nature of their wrongs. Number six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Number seven, humbly asked God to remove their shortcomings. Number eight, made a list of all persons they have harmed and became willing to make amends to them and became willing to make amends to them all. Number nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Number 10, continued to take personal inventory and when they were wrong, promptly admitted it. Number 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve their conscious contact with God as they understood God, praying only for the knowledge of God's will for them and the power to carry that out. And finally, number 12, having had a spiritual awakening to the results of these steps, they tried to carry this message to other addicts and to practice these principles in all their affairs. Now she says, I'd be happy if they looked into half of these 12. Choose any six steps and go for it. But she also says, I imagine none of these steps is what Emily Oster and her ilk had in mind. Maybe when their icons are sitting in jail, having lied publicly one too many times and having participated in mass murder, they will recognize their addiction and seek to make a personal change. With COVID, this group of almost 100 million Americans demonstrated a thousand days of collapses in critical thinking, a thousand days of lockstep unwillingness to question authority, and a thousand days of animalistic rage and aggression toward those who displayed a healthy distrust of large, non-transparent, and unaccountable organizations and institutions. But so far, none of this is being addressed. No doubt we will suffer these kinds of freedom-destroying, government-driven movements again, be the crisis a man-made disaster, a false flag, or an act of God. Next time, however, the other hundred thousand of contemptibles among us might not take it lying down. I think it's a pretty good suggestion she's got there. Check it out. It's in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Feel free to subscribe, and I'll send you a copy each day. This is The Brian Hyde Show.